Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Culpable Case Reviews is released every Friday and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want early access to next week's episode and ad-free listening, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals interviewed and participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV or Resonate Originals. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matters such as domestic violence, drug use, and other graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I made Amy a promise the day we closed her casket, and I said, I will fight until I make sure that whoever did this pays for what they've done to you. And I don't plan on stopping until somebody pays for what they've done to her. This is Abby Van, sister to Amy Jo Nelson, the victim in this story. Amy Jo was 39 years old when she was found dead in an apartment in New Straitsville, Ohio, the city where she resided. Amy Jo was a very loving and nurturing individual. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed beauty was a daughter, a sister, and a mother to her 11-year-old girl. Despite living a difficult life, wrought with years of health complications and extended hospital care, she persevered to maintain joy and laughter, both for herself and those she loved. But in the months leading up to her death, she'd become more and more distant from her loved ones, slowly turning into a shell of her former self. So when it all came to a head on September 18th, 2017, and Amy Jo's family learned the news of her death, they were left scrambling for answers. And not knowing and having all these different scenarios in your head, is, it's painful. It's painful. And then you hear things and it's all hearsay, but then it makes you angry because you're like, if that really happened, what was she thinking when this stuff was going on? Why did she not call one of us for help? Unable to reconcile the sudden loss, Amy Jo's family honed in on the months leading up to her death and the individuals she'd gotten involved with. As they put together the pieces, it's become pretty clear to them what happened to Amy Jo, making it all the more frustrating that her case remains unsolved. Knowing how hard she fought through the years of health complications and all the way to the very end, they want nothing more than to find her the justice she so deserves. 
the fact that it's still almost six years later and we don't have justice for her or somebody answering for what they've done makes it 10 times worse. She didn't fight so hard so long to have it all taken away so stupidly. This is a culpable case review of Amy Jo Nelson. She did not like to be the center of attention at all. So on one hand, I think she would be... I first heard about Amy Jo's story when it was recommended to us by a friend of the Nelson family. They helped get us in touch with Amy Jo's sister, Abby, who was more than happy to spread the word about her unsolved case. The village of New Straitsville, Ohio, where Amy Jo lived, is very small, with a population of roughly 700. So it's not surprising that her story has received very little coverage over the years. After learning of the circumstances around Amy Jo's death, I wanted nothing more than to help raise awareness, as it seems like the answers are right there. They just need to be brought to light in some way. I could quickly tell that Amy Jo came from a tight-knit family. After scheduling a time to speak with her sister, Abby, I learned that their mom, Pam, and their dad, Pete, also wished to be a part of this. So I sat down with the three of them, to learn more about this horrible tragedy and the strong, vibrant woman who was taken from them six long years ago. Starting with their backstory, I learned that Pam and Pete recently celebrated 46 years of marriage. The couple tells me they met in high school and quickly fell in love, starting a family at a young age. Of their three biological daughters, Amy Jo was the first. Amy was the oldest. She was very athletic, friendly, she was such a sweet girl. Yeah. We had a very good relationship. So Amy was the oldest, and then me, and then my youngest sister's Jessie. But we also have another girl that we consider our daughter. We raised her. She was a foster kid? We used to take foster kids in. She was like Amy's child, too. Her name's Allie. We had her from birth. We raised her till she was 18. Pam and Pete did their best to provide a good life for their girls and meet the needs of their growing family. Pete spent most of his career making oil field equipment before eventually starting a career at Goodyear. Pam was a nurse and spent time working both in a private practice and running on emergency squads. Although work was demanding, family came first. They always prioritized quality time and cherished the many vacations they were able to take together, creating many fond memories that they're able to look back on now. But life certainly wasn't easy for the Nelson family. Raising four kids is a heck of a challenge that I can personally attest to. And sadly, their oldest, Amy Jo, faced many health issues throughout her life, dating back to when she was a teenager. It started at 14, and it just, I mean, she never did get better. She was at a softball tournament, and um, she jumped up to retrieve the ball, and she went down to her knees. She couldn't breathe. And then when she went to retrieve the ball, she fell. We took her to the doctor, and they'd done a bunch of testing, and then they called with the results. It's called antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, APLS. It's a blood clotting disorder. 
and it mimics things like um, MS. It's, it has multiple things. It's, APLS it's is an autoimmune disorder that can often result in blood clotting, causing strokes and even miscarriages. It's commonly found in patients with lupus, another autoimmune disorder that Amy Jo was diagnosed with after complaining about pain in her legs. She had a specialist in Zanesville, and we took her to him, and he said it was growing Growing pains. pains. So lupus is a very hard disease to diagnose, so it took several trips to children's before they finally diagnosed her with lupus. This was all a big adjustment for the family, and especially for Amy Jo, who was a teenager at the time. The many trips to Children's Hospital to get her diagnosis straight and begin treatment was just the start of things to come. None of them knew what the future held or how much this would change their lives. She always liked to play sports in high school, but then once she got diagnosed with lupus and APLS, she didn't play. But she was tough. She had um, chemo. She had to have blood transfusions all the time. She had multiple surgeries. Actually, she was life flight a couple times with uh, blood clots in her liver. And she had a blood clot in her leg. And she had a stroke. She had um, bleeding into her eyes and behind her eyes. She went deaf on her left ear and blind in her right eye from it. She had trouble with circulation in her foot. Yeah, they were going to amputate her foot. They sent her home from OSU and said, pray for her. We took her there for 17 treatments, was supposed to be 20, and she had a stroke. And they couldn't put her back in after that. But she ended up never losing her foot. She did lose the end of her toe, and she would always paint the very end of her toe. I said, Amy, what do you paint that for? She said, because I don't have a toe now, but I want to make sure I have that extra toe. (laughs) (laughs) She took it well. She tried to joke things off, you know, was her coping mechanism, I think. Adjusting to a new reality of living with a life-altering illness is a hardship no matter what age. But for Amy Jo, it changed her life during some of her most pivotal years. While her friends were spending days at sports games and sleepovers, she more frequently found herself in and out of hospitals, seeing specialists, and receiving treatment. But her family tells me she never was one to complain. Instead, she preferred to make light of the situation. Amidst all of life's ups and downs, Amy Jo never lost her joy or her focus. She finished high school and then continued her education, eventually graduating with a degree as a dietitian and subsequently landing a job in the field. But she was always rooted in what mattered to her most, her family. Amy was kind of like my second mom because my dad worked a lot because he had to pay for the medical bills. And then when mom wasn't at the hospital with Amy, she worked, so Amy kind of took care of me and my younger sister when they were gone. But she spent a lot of time in the hospital but she never wanted anybody to feel bad for her. Amy was notorious for playing jokes on people. (laughs) She took a marker one time and colored my sister's face in the car while we, she was asleep. And mind you, we're adults at this point. We're not, we're not little kids. We're adults. (laughs) She would always 
smile. Even if she was in pain, she would always be smiling and joking and laughing. And she always had a way to make you laugh. How she joked all the time kind of wore off on all of us because I feel like now in order to get through a lot of different things, we do joke a lot. Her daughter's the same way. Because if not, then the only other thing to do is cry about it. So we try and... While Amy Jo was always known for her positive outlook and sense of humor, Abby also recalls how nurturing Amy Jo was with her younger sisters. She loved to care for others, even amidst her poor health. And Abby will always appreciate her for that. As far as she can remember, Amy Jo always dreamed of having a family of her own someday. And given her health complications, she was fortunate to have that opportunity. Around the age of 21, she met a man named Chris, who was a few years her elder, and the two formed a relationship that would last nearly 20 years, all the way up until her passing. The family tells me that Amy Jo appreciated Chris most for his sense of humor and how compatible the two were. After just a few months of dating, they moved into a house together, living just down the street from Amy Jo's parents. Eventually, the couple got engaged, though they never married. I'm told it was for insurance purposes and ensuring that Amy Jo could continue to have her medical care covered. Amy Jo always desired children, but had concerns about whether or not it would ever happen. She had actually been pregnant twice before in her life with another man, but sadly, both pregnancies ended in stillbirths as a result of her blood clotting disorder. And she suffered through similar heartache when she and Chris got pregnant together for the first time, eventually resulting in a miscarriage. But her fortune would finally change when her daughter, Suri, was born. It was like a dream come true for Amy Jo. Her family was complete. But even though her life was now full of renewed joy, unfortunately, the hardships of her health were still a reality. Amy spent every waking moment with her, and then when she was in the hospital, we would take Suri to the hospital. They'd play on the bed, she would paint her nails, do her hair color, all the time doing stuff, devoted all of her attention to her. Suri was 11 when she passed. Um, she had a hard time when Amy passed away. This bout destroyed Suri. She was devastated. She was doing really good and up until March of this year when she was diagnosed with leukemia. The family tells me that Suri meant everything to Amy Jo who tried her best to make life seem normal, despite the very abnormal circumstances. When tragedy struck and Surrey lost her mother, it took quite a toll on her. She was just 11 at the time. And it's not just the grief of losing a mother that Surrey's had to deal with in her life. She's also had to persevere through some serious health complications the past few months, similar to Amy Jo. Her diagnosis of leukemia was another blow to this beautiful yet battle-scarred family. But from everything I've heard, Surrey is exactly like her mom. She's tough. She's a fighter. She wanted to come here and say something, but she's been pretty sick. She's been in there 36 days. She was on a ventilator and kidney dialysis. She got diagnosed March 10th because Amy's birthday was March 11th. They only gave her a 10% chance of survival and she made it. We're very thankful that Surrey is on the road to recovery. We're very thankful. Very thankful. As far as 
the situation with Amy goes, we're still very angry. We're very angry that it's taken this long. We're very angry how it was handled from the beginning. And we're angry that it's taken almost six years and we still don't have the closure that we need. As a culpable listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. One thing I've learned working in true crime is that your best line of defense is vigilance and preparation, which is why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. I happen to live in a pretty nice neighborhood, but as you know, crime has a way of being anywhere at any time, even when you least expect it. When our car was broken into and items were stolen, I was so relieved to know that my home security system got the footage and it eventually led to us being reimbursed by the perpetrator once they were caught. Crime is just waiting to happen, so be prepared at all times and equip yourself with Simply Safe, the best home security system of 2024, according to U.S. News and World Report. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash culpable. That's simplysafe.com slash culpable. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Of all the heartache that this family has dealt with in their lives, it's clear that the cause of most of their grief is the fact that Amy Jo's death has yet to be resolved. Yet aside from the challenges they've had to endure throughout Amy Jo's investigation, they have been able to piece together a lot of things, both from before and after her death, which again happened in September of 2017. Looking back, the months leading up to that tragic event would prove to be a pivotal turning point in Amy Jo's life, but they didn't realize just how serious it was at the time, or where it would eventually lead. In December of 2016, Amy started saying things that didn't happen. Like she was talking out of her head, just things just weren't making sense. And I kept saying, Amy, that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. So we kind of thought something was going on mentally. This was just like a a complete change all of a sudden thing. Yeah, it was not anything any of us expected. The family didn't really know what to make of Amy Jo's strange behavior. It was all new to them and seemingly started out of the blue. So they just tried to be patient with her and monitor as best they could. But things became worrisome when Amy Jo started disappearing from her home for long stretches of time. It wasn't like her to do this. Her family became very concerned, especially her fiancé, Chris. He was about as confused as the rest of us. He just didn't know what was going on. He had noticed that she was leaving at night, not coming home in the morning. So him and I and Abby and Pete all went out there and tried to talk to her that night. But she wasn't talking any sense at all that night. We tried to do like an intervention. And that's when Chris said, I don't know. He said, there's something broken. It seems like something's broken inside. As time went on, Amy Jo's odd behavior persisted to the point that she was practically living another life. She started hanging around some questionable people and continued to distance herself from her family, both her parents and siblings, as well as Chris and Surrey. What started as staying out late at night and not returning until the next morning evolved into spending days away at a time. 
this once close-knit family was gradually being ripped apart. So eventually, they did what they felt they had to and sought help from authorities. So we had went to the sheriff's department and said, hey, that we don't know what's going on. What can we do? And they said, well, we can't help you. You need to have a doctor write her in. So she had wrote a note to a friend, and it was more or less sounded like a suicide note. So I took it to the doctor, and he filled out of paper, and I took it to the sheriff's department where they said, okay, when you she comes home, let us know. Well, it was in January. Amy had went home, and I told Mom, I said, call the sheriff and tell him that she's there. And Mom called, and they a sheriff came and a squad, and they ended up taking her to the hospital in Zanesville. After Amy Jo was admitted, Abby called the hospital to check on her sister. The person she spoke with on the phone was adamant that they couldn't tell her anything about Amy Jo. But Abby wasn't looking for any updates. She just wanted confirmation that her sister would be properly evaluated. She didn't trust that the hospital would take Amy Jo's condition seriously. And her hunch would prove to be right. About two hours later, we find out that they released her at the hospital. She was not seen by a doctor. She was seen by the emergency room nurse and said she was fine, and so they released her. But see, the doctor had rid her in for three days so they could evaluate her. And I actually called and said, please don't let her go. And they did anyway. This medical intervention was understandably a difficult thing for the family to do. But as Amy Jo's behavior became more erratic, her family felt compelled to care for her the best way they could. All they wanted was for Amy Jo to receive a thorough evaluation and some professional help so they could try and get to the bottom of what was going on with her. But they say that just never happened. From the family's view, not only did she not receive the care they felt she needed, but this undoubtedly began the rapid downturn of events that would eventually lead to Amy Jo's death. She was angry at that point. She was angry at us. She would always call Surrey. But at one point, she, Surrey had called her, couldn't get a hold of her. We were texting her. She wasn't responding. And I want to say this is March of 2017. So I had went up to the sheriff's department and filed a missing persons report. Well, Surrey remembered that she had had the Find My iPhone app on her phone, and her mom's phone was connected to it. And I went to the last place that it showed where she was, and it ended up being on a back road by an oil well, and it was just a big bank. Mom and I both got out, and we started looking because we didn't know what we were going to find. As Pam and Abby searched the area, they found no sign of Amy Jo or her phone, and eventually they returned home. A couple more days would pass until finally they were able to breathe a sigh of relief when Amy Jo texted Surrey and explained that her phone had died. While the family was grateful to know that Amy Jo was alive, her actions certainly didn't give them any sense of reassurance. And as they tried their best to keep in contact with Amy Jo, her responses became less frequent and more worrisome. I know mom and myself would text Amy, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Come home, we love you, come home. 
we would get responses most of the time, but then there were sometimes we would get responses that were not from Amy, threatening responses, threatening to come harm myself and my family, just different things. So I called up to the sheriff's department this time and I said, hey, I said, I know it's not Amy. I can tell you it's the person that she's running with. I said, is there, what can I do? And they said, well, since it came from her phone, there's no way to prove that it's not Amy sending those messages. And I said, okay. I said, well, I would like to have this documented. That was probably April. From the time that Amy Jo's behavior started to change, around December of 2016, up until about May of 2017, communication with her dwindled almost to the point that it stopped altogether. And while she lived just a few houses away from her parents, she was rarely seen over that six-month period. I asked her family if they remembered the last time they saw her before she died. From their recollection, it was an impromptu family gathering at a local campground. As Abby recalls, the whole encounter felt off. For one, Amy Jo didn't look like herself. She'd lost a ton of weight and overall just looked unwell. But what raised even more concern was when they noticed that someone else was with her, waiting on her. She kept looking at the white van that was how she got down to the campground where we were at. She came over and I said, Amy, what is going on? I will help you. I said, if you need to go to rehab, I will take you. I will sit with you and help you get help. And she kept looking at that van. I said, is there somebody over there that you're waiting on? I said, because if he has a problem, tell him to get out and he can come over here and talk to me. And she said, you don't know everything. And I said, Amy, I know I don't know everything. That's why I'm trying to talk to you. I said, just tell me and I will help you. She was scared. Abby didn't know what to do in that moment. Her focus remained on trying to convince Amy Jo to come home, but it was clear that she wasn't going to be swayed. Abby gave one final plea as they parted ways. She told her, when you're ready for help, call me and I'll be there. After this meetup, Amy Jo would go dark again for several weeks until June when Abby received a birthday text from her. I got the text message from her and I'm so thankful that I have this, but she said, happy birthday, Ab, I love you. And I said, I love you too, Aim. And she said, no matter how bad things get, I will always love you and you'll always be my sister. That was the last message I got from her. As for Amy Jo's parents, the last communication either of them had with her came a couple months later, in August, when Pam received a text. It said, Happy Mother's Day, Mom, I love you. That was in August. That's why I knew she was still confused. It was a Mother's Day meme in August, even though Mother's Day is in May. Mom hadn't heard from her since May either, so... I feel that she was trying to protect us, which makes me more angry. I'm sorry. I think she gave up. She told Pete, she said, I'm going to die anyway. That's what she told me the last time I talked to her. Because I told her, I said, Amy, I can't protect you if I don't know where you're at. And she said, uh, 
I'm not going to live very long. This is how I want to live my life. To give some context here, Amy Jo had been placed in palliative care about a year and a half before all of this. It was for pain management from her coexisting ailments. Amy Jo was prescribed several medications to help manage her pain. As far as her family knew, she'd been following doctor's orders and taking the recommended dosages. But they also believed that these medications, amongst other unprescribed drugs, were the cause of a lot of her strange behavior. It was ungodly, the amount of medication she was getting. We knew that she was taking pain medication, but we didn't realize how much. From August 2nd of 2017 to August 31st, 2017, she was prescribed 450 Percocet 30s. She was also prescribed 10 milligrams of methadone. She was also prescribed Lyrica. It was unreal the amount of medication that she was prescribed, and it's no wonder that she was talking out of her head. She was also self-medicating with street drugs. I want to say methamphetamine. Cocaine was another one because that was kind of, well, I mean, obviously when you're on that much pain medication, that would be a reason. And I know that those friends, that so-called friends that she was had started running around with, they were after her medication. While there's certainly an argument to be made about whether or not Amy Jo was being overprescribed, unfortunately, professionals wouldn't see it that way. The family tells me that after filing a complaint with the state medical board, which led to an investigation, the board said they saw no problem with the medication Amy Jo was prescribed. So next, the family tried to request a pill count. They suspected that the people she'd been hanging around also had their hands in her pill bottles. But unfortunately, when Abby called the doctor's office about this, they didn't seem to take her seriously. With seemingly no help from professionals and no contact with Amy Jo, things were looking very bleak. And it would all come to a head on September 18th, 2017, when Pam received a strange and alarming call. Well, I was actually at work. I was in a room with a patient. And my phone rang, and it was Amy's phone number. And I said, excuse me, I have to grab this call. And it was the mother of the man that Amy was supposedly with. And she said, Amy passed in her sleep last night. And I said, what? She said, she passed in her sleep. And I said, where where is she at? And she said, Main Street, New Straitsville, and... I said, don't you touch her. I will be right there. First, I got nervous and I fell down on the ground. I couldn't get my bearings straight. So the office manager drove me down to the scene. Pam immediately called Abby to break the news to her and asked that she come meet her. So mom called me at work and said... Amy's gone. And I said, what do you mean she's gone? And she said, she passed away last night. She said, I don't know what happened. Just meet me in New Straitsville. So I left and met her. When I pulled in, mom was pulling in right in front of me and I pulled in right behind her. And when she started to walk up, the two New Straitsville cops, one was the chief and the other one was the auxiliary officer, came walking across the street to stop her. 
The responding officers with the New Straitsville Police Department were Chief Andy Love and Auxiliary Officer Zane Love, who happens to be Andy's nephew. And Mom said, I want to see her, I want to see her. And when she got up there, the, the woman that called her, the mother, said, this happened because they took her pills away. There was all kind of people in that apartment. Outside of the authorities, how many people would you estimate were in that apartment? The boyfriend and then the mom and then the girl's apartment that it was, and then a relative of theirs. The woman that was in the apartment the whole time when Amy died and everything was in there cleaning the apartment. She was just tidying the whole place up, even had the beds made. When the police went in, they didn't secure the scene. They didn't make anybody leave. They didn't gather any evidence. They didn't rope the scene off. I mean, that's the first thing you do. Oftentimes, families lose trust in authorities the longer their loved one's case goes unsolved. But the Nelson family were fed up almost instantly with New Straitsville Police's inadequacy and how poorly they handled the scene. Pam was adamant that a more equipped department take over the investigation. My mom kept asking the chief, Andy Love, are you going to call BCI? And he said, ma'am, there's no crime scene. Mom said, what do you mean there's no crime scene? She's 39 years old and she's dead in an apartment. There's got to be something wrong. And this was before we ever saw her. While we were standing there, they, of course, had to call the coroner. And the coroner got there and he went upstairs and he came back down and he said... I'm going to send her for an autopsy. And mom said, what do you think happened? He said, I don't know. Things aren't adding up. So at that point, the funeral directors were there and they had went upstairs to get her. And when they went in to get her and brought her down, sorry. When they were finally able to see Amy Jo, they were immediately convinced that she hadn't passed in her sleep, as was reported to Pam by the woman on the phone. The family felt it was pretty obvious what had actually happened to her. When they brought her down on the street, my mom threw her body over the top of her and said, Oh my God, what did they do to you? And you, when you looked at her, she had bruises all over this side of her face. <laughs> on her nose. She had blood coming out of her mouth and her nose. And we pulled the blanket down so we could hold her hand. And there were bruises all over both of her hands. You had to be blind not to see that. I mean, that's what I told them at the scene. And, you know, there was two local police officers there, and they couldn't see that. And... They told the two police officers that she tripped over a rope or a cord and hit her head. I could see that, but that wouldn't cause that many bruises. As the funeral director hauled Amy Jo's body away, her family hoped that an autopsy would soon reveal the truth of what happened to her. In the meantime, they pressed authorities for more information, but couldn't get much out of them. Pam wanted to know that they at least took pictures of the scene, and the chief insisted that they did. Next, he handed Pam a grocery bag of Amy Jo's clothes, as well as her purse and cell phone. 
but Pam insisted they keep the cell phone in case it could be used as evidence. Eventually, the family left the scene and returned home, while authorities and the tenants remained at the apartment. Later that afternoon, the family would get a visit from the New Straitsville police. He came out and he said that they were treating her case as a homicide. And mom said, well, what do you mean you're treating it as a homicide? Are you going to call BCI now? And he said, ma'am, there was no crime scene. Just tell people she died of a drug overdose is what he said. He said, because we don't want them to get their story straight. Mom said, well, what do you mean? They had plenty of time to get their story straight. They were there all morning together. And they've been there for several days together. They should have been questioned right immediately. This is what I believe. Had they have called the BCI that morning, they would have arrested them three that was in that apartment. While it's impossible to know whether or not this is true, Pete may have a point here, because the family would soon receive the autopsy results they'd been anxiously waiting for, and those results would paint a pretty clear picture of what happened to Amy Jo, and also call into question the story that the people inside the apartment gave to authorities, that Amy had tripped and fell, dying in her sleep. While the family wishes to keep the autopsy report under wraps to protect the integrity of the investigation, they were willing to share some of the findings, the first being that they did in fact rule her death as a homicide. But there were some other shocking details they shared too. Her cause of death was multiple blunt force trauma to the head. She had abrasions and bruises throughout her body. She had prescription medication in her body, as well as methamphetamine. According to her autopsy, she died long before my mom was called. We've asked several times, what time did the call come in to 911? And we've never been given an answer. So I don't know what time 911 was called. My mom got the phone call at 11.08 a.m. that morning. We've been told that the timeline that the individuals in the apartment gave to both law enforcement and the coroner did not add up with the autopsy. From the moment Amy Jo's family set foot in that apartment, they were convinced that her death was no accident. Rather, she'd been murdered. With the results of her autopsy, they finally had some proof. And they expected that those results would also light a fire under her investigation. A week later, they'd receive a surprise visit from Chief Andy Love. But unfortunately, he hadn't come with good news, as they were hoping. The chief came out to our house and said, I don't feel like I am equipped to handle this case. One week after Amy passed, he resigned as chief. I think because he knew he screwed up, especially with not calling BCI with the dead body there. The coroner, he's telling you things are not adding up. I mean, we live in a small town. Our local police department is not on duty full-time. It's all part-time. I know it happened within the city limits or the village limits. They should have never kept it there. Aside from being ill-equipped and inexperienced, the family had growing concerns about the thoroughness of the investigation by the New Straitsville police. One example of this was their hesitancy to seek support from outside agencies. But the family only made that suggestion because they sensed from the jump that the New Straitsville police weren't taking Amy Jo's case seriously 
and as the months passed, this would seemingly be affirmed. Amy Jo died in September of 2017, yet by December, very little had been done with her case, according to family. So they requested a meeting between Chief Zane Love with the New Straitsville Police and Sheriff William Barker and Detective Adam Newland with the neighboring Perry County Sheriff's Office. It was then decided that the Perry County Sheriff's Office would support New Straitsville in their investigation by re-interviewing witnesses and experts that New Straitsville had originally interviewed. But the family says that when the Sheriff's Office requested the documents from those original interviews, Chief Love didn't want to send original files for fear of losing them, and he never made the effort to send them copies. Come January, the family made a formal complaint to Mayor Michael Jewett regarding Chief Love and his handling of Amy Jo's case. At this point, her death was still being spun as an overdose to the public, despite her autopsy clearly stating it was homicide. And that obviously didn't sit right with the family. Hoping to set the record straight, they met with prosecutor Joseph Flout in March of 2018 and asked that he make a formal statement clarifying that Amy Jo's death is being investigated as a homicide, not a drug overdose. But he told them he would not comment publicly on a case that he may end up trying. It would be years before the media picked up on the fact that her death had been ruled a homicide. The family's patience was wearing thinner by the day. They felt that authorities were not making Amy Jo's case a priority. An example of this was the New Straitsville Police's delay in processing her phone as evidence to see what information it might contain. Initially, police tried to give the phone back to the family, along with Amy Jo's other belongings, but they insisted it be kept as evidence. Despite constant follow-up dating back to September of 2017 when Amy Jo was discovered, it wasn't until June of 2018 that the family received confirmation that the phone had been taken to the Perry County Sheriff's Office for processing. In October of 2018, a little over a year removed from Amy Jo's death, the family received some welcome news when they learned that the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation had finally been asked for assistance. While they are optimistic that the BCI can help make a difference in this case, unfortunately, they have no insight into their work. So very little is known about what role they're playing in the investigation or what they've been able to accomplish since getting involved. But at the end of the day, it has been made clear to the public that while the Perry County Sheriff's Office and the BCI can assist in this investigation, this case is ultimately in the hands of the New Straitsville Police. And it's their responsibility to resolve it. But the family hasn't been given any assurance over the years that their local police will solve this. After Chief Love's resignation in August of 2019, Kyle Callendine was appointed as chief. When the family reached out to him to ask about the investigation, they were told that the only documentation he could find on Amy Jo's case were five pieces of paper and some autopsy photos. Since then, there's been multiple new chiefs appointed, and it seems that the further things get away from Amy Jo's death, the less the newer chiefs know about the case. So in terms of how the New Straitsville Police is handling this case now, there's really no telling. The family has always tried their best to keep a pulse on things, but it's been a very frustrating process. They say that the past six years have been filled with empty promises and continual turnover within the New Straitsville Police Department. And at this point, they're fed up. They just hope that as this case moves forward, the outside agencies who have been involved remain a part of this because it's very hard for them to trust their local police department at this point. And I do want to make this very clear. I have the utmost respect for law enforcement but I'm very angry with the, new, the way the New Straitsville Police Department handled this. Very angry. I called the state representative's office and 
I will say they were a lot of help to us. And he's actually been calling the sheriff, checking up on this case. I know that BCI was just back again and doing things around that apartment. We just keep starting back over. And I finally said, this is ridiculous. We're on a hamster wheel and nothing is getting done. Because by the time this person gets caught up on it, they're already gone. They leave for a new position. To this day, no person of interest has ever been publicly named in this case. We reached out to both the New Straitsville Police and the Perry County Sheriff's Office for comment, but they have not responded. As the family waits for answers and word of an arrest, they continue to do everything they can to keep Amy Jo's memory alive, reflecting on her spirit of love and laughter and cherishing every day they spend together. Pam, Pete, Abby, and Chris are committed to supporting and caring for Surrey in her ongoing health battles. Amidst all the hardships she's faced in her lifetime, Surrey has never lost her spirit or the love she has for her mother. She even asked to share a few words with us. My mom's death has impacted me by becoming a strong, independent woman at such a young age. I think it's important for my mom's story to stay in the news because it could probably inspire people to speak out more when they see something and like it could save girls' lives. That's the main focus, is just to keep her story alive. As time goes on, it gets a little better, but you still have those moments like you wish they were here with you. It's been a struggle, but I just keep telling myself, just keep pushing through it because your mom's watching over you and you can't give up. My mom was a fighter, so I'm gonna be a fighter for everyone in my family. Though her battle with leukemia is not over yet, it's comforting to know that in her corner she has a strong and loving family. Over the last six years, these people have had to process the pain of losing a mother, a partner, a sister, and daughter. And as they've come to grips with Amy Jo's tragic death, they've made a conscious effort to educate others on the dangers of domestic violence, even creating a way for people to support and hopefully save the lives of other victims out there. After Amy passed, I filled out all the paperwork to be a 501c3 nonprofit, and it's called Amy's Gift to Hope. And every year we've held a auction and a ATV ride and raised funds and donated to our two local domestic violence shelters. I mean, she had went through hell and back fighting to have it be taken by somebody else. That's, that's a lot. That makes us very angry. The fact that it's still almost six years later and we don't have justice for her or somebody answering for what they've done makes it 10 times worse. I would say, consider your daughter being in Amy's shoes and this happening to your daughter if somebody knew it, what would you want them to do? Would you want them to continue to hold on to that information or come forward so that the family can get some kind of closure? 
Nothing that we do is ever going to bring Amy back. But at least we will have some kind of closure and can possibly move on from this. She deserves it. And I told her that I will make sure that I get it and I have not stopped for six years. There will be justice, one way or another. There will be justice. If you have any information about the death of Amy Jo Nelson, please contact the Perry County Sheriff's Office tip line at 740-721-0898. The family is offering a $10,000 reward for any information that leads to an arrest and conviction. And if you're interested in supporting their nonprofit, Amy's Gift of Hope, please visit the Amy's Gift of Hope Facebook page to learn more about the work they're doing and the various ways that you can help. Thanks for listening. Culpable Case Review is a production of Resonate Originals and Tenderfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper. Executive producers are myself, Mark Mennery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Our senior producer is John Street. Additional production from Jamie Albright and Taylor Floyd. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Dayton Cole, Pat Kicklighter, and Adam Townsell of the Resonate Recordings team. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. Our cover art is by Drew Bardana. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcast. Additional content can be found on our website, CulpablePodcast.com, If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to tune in next week when we return with an all-new case. Till next time.